Let us pray together. Oh, great Father, God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that your eternal Son entered into our humanity and our history, that he united himself to us, that he might live and suffer and die and rise again in our stead, forming a new humanity. He is our representative who has gone on ahead of us and has blazed the trail for us into your presence. And so now in him, we come before you, O Father. We come before you knowing that in him we are accepted by you, knowing that in him we are righteous before you. We come in him knowing we have new life, knowing that we've been given your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that your spirit would bear fruit in our lives. We pray that you would make us a praying people, a dependent people, a humble people who look to you as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Oh, give us what we need. Oh, Father above, this we pray in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to do one of those preacher things this morning. I want to do a little spiritual check-in with you, a little spiritual check-up. All right? How's your prayer life? How are you doing with prayer? All Christians know they should pray, but for many of us, myself included, making prayer a priority, making prayer a habit is hard. We need to understand that prayerlessness is practical atheism. If you don't pray, you might as well not believe in God, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're living as if there were, were no God. John Calvin once said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. What does faith do? Faith prays. Faith cries out to God. Calvin said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Therefore, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against prayer. More than anything else, what Satan wants you to do is keep you from praying. More than anything else, Satan's strategy in your life is to disrupt and distract you from prayer. He doesn't want you to have a vibrant prayer life because if you have a vibrant prayer life, so many other things in your life will fall into place the way God wants them to. But if you don't pray, then you're easy pickings for Satan. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, as a shoemaker makes a shoe and a tailor makes a coat, so a Christian ought to pray. Prayer is the daily business of the Christian. So again, I ask you, if prayer is your daily business, is business good? Is business booming? Or are you in something of a prayer recession or even prayer depression right now? Luther says prayer is the daily business of the, of the Christian. And yet so many of us fail to make prayer our daily business. Prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. And yet we must pray. We can't just pray when we feel like it. We can't just pray when we've run out of other options. You know the old saying, we've got to pray. Oh, has it come to that? You know, there's nothing else, so we'll pray. We can't do anything else. No, don't treat prayer as a last resort. We need to pray even when we don't feel like it. Indeed, we need to pray until we feel like it and then keep praying. We need to pray hardest when it is hard to pray. The great tragedy of the Christian life is not unanswered prayer. It's unoffered prayer. Prayer is the greatest weapon in the Christian arsenal. If our Christian lives are weak and ineffective and fruitless, 
If our Christian lives are stained by worldliness and compromise, it is almost certainly because we do not pray as we ought. Prayer is the missing piece. And so if we want to learn how to pray, if we want to be inspired to pray, there's really no better place to go than Jesus himself. Because all throughout his earthly ministry, we see Jesus is the consummate man of prayer, continually going to his heavenly Father in prayer. He instructs us to pray. Uh, We pray in his name. All answers to prayer flow to us through him. Prayer is indeed, you might say, his gift to us. Because we can only approach the Father in prayer through the Son, prayer is really the gift of Jesus to the church. And so let's look what Jesus has to say about prayer. Let's look in Luke chapter 11. This is some of the most extensive teaching on prayer that Jesus gives. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is praying, as was his custom. He would often go off to pray. He's praying in a certain place. And one of his disciples, wanting to imitate Jesus' prayer life, seeing that Jesus has this vibrant prayer life and wanting something like it for himself, comes to Jesus and asks for instruction about prayer. Hey, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Why don't you do that for us, Jesus? Teach us to pray, Lord. And so Jesus does. And the first thing he does is he gives to his uh, his questioning disciple a model, a model prayer, uh, what we, of course, know as the Lord's Prayer. And this is a prayer form or a set prayer that certainly can and should be recited as we do so every, uh, every week, and I trust that you do in your families as well, in your own life. But it's not just a prayer to be recited. Of course, it's also a model. It's a pattern. It sort of gives us pegs on which we can hang our own petitions. It gives us categories for the content of our prayers. It shows us the kind of shape that all our prayers should have. And then Jesus goes on to tell a story, a story about a man coming to his neighbor at midnight. And then he goes on to give several analogies. And this is where we really want to focus our attention is on verses 5 through 13. This is where we really want to concentrate our uh, our efforts this morning. Jesus' first concern in verses 5 through 13 is not what we pray for. That, I think, actually is addressed in the Lord's Prayer. There you have what the content of our prayers should look like. Rather, it's to whom are we praying? What does it mean to pray to this God, the God that we're praying to? What is he like? What can we expect from him? And I want you to see here, Jesus is grounding prayer in the very being and character of God. Notice here, this teaching on prayer is really a continued outworking of the teaching he's just given. When Jesus is asked about prayer, the first thing he does is he starts off, Our Father. In order to pray aright, you have to approach God as your Father. And then that continues to be the focus after he gives them the Lord's Prayer. The focus is on the character of God as our Father. Prayer is grounded in who God is and in our relationship with God. A relationship that that is described here as friendship, but also and especially as a Father-Son relationship. So Jesus opens this teaching on prayer by saying, Our Father, this is how you should pray, Our Father. And then he really returns to this theme of God's fatherhood at the end. Verse 2, he starts off, Our Father. 
And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. And then at the end of it, he comes back and he talks about in verses 9 through 13 about a father and a son. And even you, fathers, know if your son comes to you, what you will give to him in response to his requests. So God's fatherhood really surrounds all of this teaching on prayer. It starts there in verse 2, and then he picks back up on it again with those analogies in verses 11, 12, and 13. If your son asks you for bread, you don't give him a stone. That's not what good fathers do. Now, why is God's fatherhood so crucial to our prayer lives? Why is understanding this father-son relationship that we have with God so important to prayer? God as father to his people is certainly not something new with Jesus. It's not brand new starting here for the first time with Jesus. It's something that you find in the Old Covenant scriptures, something you find referenced in the Old Testament. In the Exodus from Egypt, for example, Israel is called God's son, which means God is Israel's father. Later on, Israel's king is called the son of God. God is a father to the king in Israel. The king is God's son. But while there was clearly a father-son relationship between God and Israel or between God and Israel's king, you don't find the Israelites addressing God as father in the Old Covenant scriptures. They never dare to address God in such an intimate way. They never cry out Abba. They wouldn't have used that language. But they never cry out father to God in the Old Covenant scriptures. There's no psalm that starts out our father or my father. The psalmist just doesn't ever pray that way. The Israelites didn't address God in those terms. But now here you have Jesus being asked about prayer. How should we pray? And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray our Father. And all of his teaching about prayer is really teaching about God's fatherhood. And you need to see, this is both intimate and subversive at the same time. On the one hand, it means there's a new intimacy that God's people will have with him. Jesus is introducing a closer relationship with God than anything Israel had known. And this is ultimately going to culminate when the veil in the temple, that barrier to the Father's presence, is torn when Jesus dies on the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, the veil is torn, and that's a sign of saying, now you have access to the Father. You can come before the Father, and you have this face-to-face relationship with the Father that nobody's had before. There's a new kind of intimacy or closeness here. And so really Jesus is saying here, he's saying, look, you can only pray when you are secure in God's fatherly love for you. When you know that as a father, he has accepted you. When you know that as your father, he is pleased with you. You have to know God as your father and yourself as his child if you are to pray faithfully. And I can tell you, I've seen this in uh, just in my own life as a Christian, my own observations. Christians who have that kind of security in their relationship with their heavenly father are the ones who pray the most. They pray the most in terms of quantity, but also really in terms of quality. Their prayers are just the best because they have that sense of nearness to God. They know who God is. They know who they are in relationship to Him. They see God as their Father, a loving and tender and kind and compassionate Father. If you think of God as distant from you, aloof from you, if you think of God as angry or wrathful towards you, you're not going to go to God in prayer. 
We come to God in prayer because he's a good and loving father. This is why we come to God with our needs, with our desires, because we trust him as a loving father. There's a new kind of intimacy here. But there's also something really subversive about it, really revolutionary about this. To invoke the name of father for Israel's God means that the new exodus that promised great liberation is now coming to pass. It means Jesus is really a new and greater Moses figure. To call God Father means we're now aligning ourselves with the mission of Jesus. We're signing on to the kingdom he announced. We're saying that new exodus has happened. Remember, you go back to the Old Covenant, it's when the exodus happens that God describes himself as a father and Israel as his son. And so for Jesus to pull this language out means the new exodus is happening. The new exodus is now taking place. And for your prayers to really be what they should be, yeah, they've got to be father-son prayers, but they're also kingdom prayers. They're new exodus prayers. They're prayers that are based upon what God is accomplishing through Jesus. Everything hinges on that. Seeing how Jesus brings about this revolutionary change, how he brings about this great deliverance for the people of God. The new exodus that the prophets promised. An exodus so great that they would forget all about the first exodus. Now that's happening. And this father-son relationship in prayer points us to that. But how does the fact that God is our father relate to prayer? How does it shape the way in which we pray? Well, Jesus goes on and he explains this. He tells a story. Really, it's a little parable. And like all of Jesus' parable, it can't be pressed in, 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 too far in a totally literal kind of way. It's more like a riddle or a puzzle we're supposed to meditate on and then figure out what it means, how it applies. He, he gives a little story here that actually gives us a pretty unattractive image of what prayer is, but it makes several really important points. It's about a man who comes looking for bread from his neighbor at midnight. And Eugene Peterson makes the point that this story, this old parable Jesus tells, is set in the context of, uh, of ordinary life. Going next door to your neighbor to borrow something, thats we're probably familiar with that. Okay, My wife's working nursery this morning, so she can't hear me say this, but almost every time she goes to make something, it seems like she's got to go ask a neighbor for something because she's forgotten it at the store. That just that happens to all of us, right? You forget something you need, so you go next door and ask if your neighbor has it. Okay, I think our neighbors have started to buy extra just so they'll have it on hand, okay? Um, this, is, this is the ancient equivalent of going next door to borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor. Jesus is indicating here that, this, that, that prayer should be a routine part of life. An ordinary part of our lives. As ordinary as going next door to borrow something from a neighbor, that's how prayer should be. Prayer should be like talking to a neighbor. It should come natural to us in that kind of way. It should be like talking to a friend. It's having a conversation with a neighbor or a friend. And yet this is also a peculiar story because in the story Jesus tells, uh, the man goes next door at midnight Okay, my wife has never had to go at midnight to borrow something. I, most neighbors probably would not be real excited about that if you came banging on their door in the middle of the night to get something that you needed. But here too, there's a point Jesus is making. Jesus wants us to know we can pray at any time. There's never a bad time to call on God's help. We should be willing to pray at any time, day or night. And yet this story still is really only a loose Metaphor, Because, again, if you were to press this 
too hard theologically, it would start to break down. What Jesus is doing here, and it really becomes clear a little later on in the passage, um, what Jesus is doing in this whole section is he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. It's a how much more than kind of argument. So it goes something like this. If a sleepy, lazy neighbor will finally get up out of bed and answer your knocking at the door, how much more will the God who never sleeps or slumbers stand ready to answer your prayers? If a lazy neighbor will eventually get out of bed and come and answer your knocking, how much more will the God who never sleeps or slumbers come and answer your requests even in the middle of the night. And again, as he goes on, as Jesus goes on in this section, the next series of analogies that he gives really proves that this is how we should read the parable. He goes on to say, if you evil human fathers, you fallen human fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, see there's the logic of it, how much more does your good heavenly father know how to give these kinds of gifts to his children? God is more ready to help than even the best human neighbors. He's more ready to help and give than even the best human fathers. That's the point Jesus is making here. And the analogies right after the story, again, prove the point. God's not like the lazy friend. He's a better friend than that. You you seek to be a good father to your children, but you're still evil and fail your children in all kinds of ways. God is a perfect and loving Heavenly Father, an omnipotent, loving Heavenly Father, He's like you, only better. If you do good things for your kids, how much more is God the Father going to do good for His children? That's the logic of this section, the teaching Jesus gives here. Jesus shows us God as our Father is willing and generous. God is ready to answer. More ready to answer our prayers than we are to offer them. God is ready to meet our needs. And so what is prayer? Prayer is just a way of tapping into God's willingness to do good to us. Prayer is a way of releasing and unleashing God's good gifts that He wants to give us, but gifts that can only be bestowed on His children through prayer. God's not like that genie that when He comes out of Aladdin's lamp, when He comes out of the bottle, is upset that he's been disturbed. You know, so often in the old stories, that's how it is. The genie comes out of the bottle and he's upset. You know, why have you disturbed me? And he kind of reluctantly grants the wishes that he has to. God's not like that. Prayer is not a matter of twisting God's arm. It's not that God doesn't want us to bother him. And if we just bother him enough, then he'll get around to doing what we ask. It's actually the other way around. If even a sleepy neighbor will eventually get up, and be willing to help in response to persistent calls, persistent knocking. How much more is God ready to hear and to act? Martin Luther really captured this well. Luther said prayer is not so much overcoming God's reluctance as it is laying hold of His willingness. And that is exactly right. You're not overcoming God's reluctance, ultimately persuading God. You're actually laying hold of God's willingness. He wants to give you good things, If only you will pray for them. God's not some miser in the sky hoping He won't have to give us good things. 
You just can't square that with everything Scripture teaches us about who God is. Biblical declarations about God's goodness and God's generosity and God's compassion, God's pity, uh, God's love for us are all over the place in Scripture. We read one this morning in Jeremiah 32 where God says of his people, I will rejoice over them to do good to them. I will not stop doing good to them. God rejoices in doing good to his, to his people and in giving good gifts to his people. And the whole point of prayer is to release that goodness. Prayer is a way of unlocking God's treasury. Unlocking the treasure chest full of good gifts. You know, where did we ever get this idea that God doesn't want us to have good things? Of course God wants to fill our lives with good things. Of course God wants what is best for you. He promises to give you every good thing. He is a good Father. Prayer unlocks that goodness. Prayer lays hold of God's good gifts. Oh, but you're thinking there's got to be a catch, right? There's got to be some fine print in there somewhere because, you know, I I prayed for that bass boat and I didn't get it. So obviously there's got to be, you know, something more going on here. Well, uh, there is not a catch. I wouldn't say there's a catch, but there is a qualification uh, that emerges from the teaching of Jesus here. God will give us good things. God is determined to give us good things, but he will do so on his own timetable. God has his own ways and his own schedule. And so we also find in this passage that, yes, God gives us those things, that we desire, but he gives them to us in his own time and in his own way. And that's really the point of the story. God may not answer the door right away. You might have to keep on knocking. You might have to keep on knocking for quite some time. God will answer, but he'll answer when the time is right. Well, when is the time right? I would like to have those things I'm praying for now. Well, Father knows best. Your heavenly Father knows what you need and when you need it, and He will give you those things on His own timetable. The fact that you don't get an answer right away doesn't mean that God is deaf. It doesn't mean that God is powerless or reluctant. It doesn't mean God is hung out, a do not disturb sign on His door, and doesn't want to be bothered by your prayers anymore. The story about the lazy neighbor is a way of telling us that we need to hang in there. When it comes to prayer, we need to be persistent and persevere in prayer. And if God doesn't answer, if he doesn't answer the way we would like him to, when we would like him to, well, God has his reasons. God has his reasons for making us wait. And we must trust that as our loving Heavenly Father, those reasons are ultimately for his good. That, I think, is what Jesus is showing us here. Now, just because you don't get an answer doesn't mean you should give up. Again, Jesus is saying here, keep on knocking at heaven's door. Keep knocking at heaven's door until the answer comes. That's the kind of prayer that will prevail with the Father. Don't get discouraged and give up if the answer is postponed or if there is a delay. Jesus tells this story so we will learn to persist in prayer. Later in in Luke's Gospel, he talks about those who pray without giving up. That's what he wants us to do, to pray without giving up. God invites us to knock and keep on knocking, to ask and keep on asking, to seek and keep on seeking. This is God's way. God will answer us when he is 
ready. John Calvin uh, says God wants us to weary him with his prayers. You just keep coming before God again and again and again. The church father Tertullian said we should besiege heaven with our prayers. Continually besiege heaven. Just don't let God go without a blessing. Continue to pray and don't give up. But Jenny might ask, and this is not just a, a practical sort of pastoral question that comes up when prayers go unanswered. It's really also a weighty theological question. Somebody might ask, well, why do I need to keep on asking? Why isn't once enough? I mean, I tell God what I want, and why do I need to tell him again? And, of course, you might even ask, why do we even need to tell God once? Doesn't God already know? Why does Jesus teach that effectiveness in prayer is tied to persistence in prayer? What's the point of that? Why do we need to ask more than once? Why do we need to ask at all? If God already knows, if God already knows what we need or what we desire. Well, leave it to C.S. Lewis to, to, to answer this question in a really helpful way. There's a little vignette in uh, The Magician's Nephew. This is part of the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, Lewis, I think, really gets at this. And The Magician's Nephew, there's, there's a story, there, there's a part of that book where uh, you have Aslan, who, of course, is the Christ figure. He's known as Aslan in the Narnian world. He's known as Jesus in our world. He's the Lion King. He's the son of the Most High God. You have Aslan, who is the Christ figure, and he sends a couple of children, Polly and Diggory, on a mission. And they go with Fledge, who is this talking and flying horse, because they have that kind of thing in Narnia. And after the three of them have been going on for quite some while, they realize they have nothing to eat. And so Diggory says, well, uh, I suppose someone might have arranged for our meals. Certainly somebody should have looked out for us and thought ahead to plan uh, for our meal times. And Fledge, the talking horse, says, well, I'm sure Aslan would have if you had asked him. And then Polly says, wouldn't he know without being asked? Holly, kind of the theologian of the group, thinking, well, surely Aslan is omniscient. Wouldn't he know? If Aslan already knows, why pray? Okay. And the horse Fledge, being the wisest of them, says, yes, he'd know already, but I think he likes to be asked. And that's the point. Why pray? Because God likes to be asked. Prayer is not a waste of time and effort. I don't like being told something I already know. I don't like being told something more than once. But prayer is operating in a different kind of way. Jesus teaches us here to pray and keep on praying, even when God already knows. And even we've already told God already what it is we desire. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of them is this. And I think this is, this is important. When prayer goes unanswered, over an extended period of time, God is doing more in you than you can realize. See, what's at stake is not just the answer to your prayer. What's at stake is your own personal transformation. It's not just a matter of getting what you desire, getting what you come before God, uh, what you're asking for. It's a matter of God working in you to transform you, to shape your desires. God uses persistence in prayer to mature us, to make us disciplined and patient and faithful. See, God doesn't always work quickly, but he does always work perfectly. And as we pray and wait, we learn to trust him in new and deeper ways. See, believing and knocking go together. Believing and waiting 
go together. We continue to trust Him even as we wait. And as we wait, our trust in God is deepened. Keep on asking for what you need. You know, think about this. If God gave you everything you asked for right away, you would think of God more as a vending machine than as a heavenly father. You wouldn't learn anything that way. We, you know, we live in what's been called a, a, an instant society or a fast food society. Somebody goes into a, conv- a convenience store, they buy an item. The average item bought at a convenience store is consumed in 60 seconds. Okay. That's, that's the society we're used to with the internet and all. We're just used to having everything instantaneously. We don't want to wait. We want what we want and we want it now. But there is something to be learned in waiting. If you get something right away and it just it comes, there's no effort put into it, you're really not very thankful for it. You really don't have very much gratitude for what you've been given. Often as we pray for something over a period of time, when we finally do get it, we find that we're much more grateful than we would have been otherwise. But also sometimes as we pray for something over a period of time, what we desire, what we've been praying for starts to change. Okay, kids, we're getting into fall, and that means before long, you're going to start to see Christmas decorations around, and people are going to start asking you what you want for Christmas. One thing I found when my kids were growing up is that if you asked them what, you want, what they wanted for Christmas in August, you'd get one answer, and if you asked them in late November, you'd get a different answer. So we'd always put off the Christmas shopping to the last minute. You know, because what they want would change over time. And some of that may be due to growing up. Some of that may be due to the advertisements they were seeing. I don't know. All kinds of things could be going on there. But what we want, what we desire can change over time. And this is certainly true as we pray for something. Sometimes we'll start off praying for something. And over time as we pray, our desire shifts and we realize that's not really what I wanted. I thought that was a stone. It was actually a scorpion to me. I really want this instead. This is what I really need. And God is at work in us over time as we're praying. You know, if you're praying for something over an extended period of time and you don't get an answer, certainly one thing that you can do is question whether or not you're praying for the right thing. Question whether or not your petitions align with God's intentions. Now, sometimes they will. You know that you're praying for something good and God's not giving it to you for whatever reason. And there you simply have to trust his goodness. But there are a lot of times where you're praying for something and over time you realize that what's actually happening as you pray is, no, God's not giving you what you started out praying for, but he's changing your desire over time. He's using your exercise of persistent prayer to mold your will to his. He is refining what what you pray for, what you want. And I want you to understand, this doesn't just mean that prayer is some kind of psychological release. You know, there are even secular people who will say prayer is good because, you know, it's just this psychological thing. No, the reason that prayer is good, even if you don't get what you're asking for, is because in prayer you're interacting with God. And it becomes a means of transformation in your life. God starts to rub off on you. Prayer is simply keeping company with God. And as you keep company with God in prayer, God starts to rub off on you and you start to learn some of the things you thought you wanted, you really don't. And what you really desire shifts and it's transformed. God molds you by molding the content of your prayers. Prayer you can think of as like a fine wine that has to be aged to perfection. God keeps us waiting in order to give us what is best. 
So we don't always get what we want right away. Uh, sometimes we realize over time, I was actually asking for a snake and God wanted to give me a fish and I was just asking for the wrong thing. This is why God wants us to pray and not give up. It's why He wants us to pray and not lose heart. So don't be afraid to pester God with your prayers. To come before God continuously. And as one theologian put it, to shamelessly harass God with your requests until you get what you want or what you want changes. Because that's something God is doing in you through your prayers. Now, there's a danger in this, a danger in talking so much about how prayer changes us that we miss other dimensions, other aspects of prayer. Uh, and, and we don't want to do that. While what I've said about God using prayer to change us and refine our desires is certainly true, that's not the whole of what prayer is about. So we need to be very careful, even as we affirm that God uses prayer to change us and mature us and shape us, that we do not reduce prayer merely to a means of our own transformation. Because prayer in Scripture is not just about changing us. Prayer really is a way of changing the world. See, some will say prayer only works in that inner subjective psychological way, at that inner subjective psychological level. It may change us, but that's it. No. The whole scripture shows us prayer is more than that. Prayer is an effectual, world-changing power that God has given to us. Prayer is a weapon for which there are no countermeasures. Prayer is a weapon God has given to us, and our enemies are helpless against our prayers. Prayer is a means through which God fulfills His purposes and brings His plans to pass. It's really interesting. Um, I, I'll put it this way. When God intends to give people good things, He also stirs them up to pray for them. We read from Jeremiah 32 this morning. You go back a few chapters to 29, and God says what He's going to do. He's going to send Israel into exile as punishment for her sins. And then he says, you will call on me and I will answer you and deliver you. See, God intends to deliver Israel from the exile to bring them back in a new exodus. But it's only going to happen when they pray for it. So the prayers, as much as the answer to those prayers, are included in God's plan. God says, you'll call to me and I will answer. That's the pattern. That's how God has planned it. He's planned our, because He's planned to give them good things, He's also planned for them to pray for those things. The prayers and the deliverance go together. Prayer is a means through which God fulfills His purposes and brings His good plans to pass. Prayer brings together God's willingness and God's ability. In answering prayer, God reveals Himself as our good Father as the all-sufficient one who gives us every good gift. So certainly persistent prayer changes us. There's transformation that takes place within. But it also changes the world. It transforms the world because God responds to it. <clears throat> William Temple put it this way. He said, when I pray, coincidence, coincidences happen. When I don't pray, they don't happen. Uh, and that's exactly right. Prayer changes things in the world. There are things that happen because the people of God prayed for them that would not have happened without those prayers. Finally, the parable here also shows us in a way what to ask for. The kinds of prayers the Father ultimately finds irresistible. What kind of prayer does God delight to answer? 
Well, again, think about the story here in verses 5 through 8. What does the man come and ask for at midnight? He comes asking for bread. Why? So he can show hospitality. Okay, well, there you have it. He's making a request so he can serve others more fully and more faithfully. So here you have to ask, do you pray for selfish ends with nothing more in mind than your own convenience and comfort? Perhaps you have not because you ask not, or perhaps you have not because you ask for the wrong kinds of things in the wrong kind of way. Your prayers are simply selfish. Are your prayers selfish prayers or are they kingdom prayers? Are they cries because you haven't gotten your way or are they cries for the kingdom? Prayers for midnight bread so you can serve others are the kinds of prayers God delights to answer. Are you asking God to give you what you need, to give you the resources you need so you can serve others as an agent of his kingdom, so you can do the work of the kingdom, work like hospitality? You know, so be like this guy in the story. He can't meet the needs of those he is around, and, but he knows someone who can meet those needs, and so he goes to him. Ask God for things not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Ask God to give you what you need to enable you to serve others. Certainly you can pray for your own needs to be met. That's included in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with praying that God would give you your own needs. But we also need to pray that God would give us a surplus even. That God would give us the midnight bread so we have what we need to meet the needs of others. So yes, ask for your daily bread. Pray for yourself, your own needs. But also pray for the midnight bread so you can serve others. Ask God to fill your own cupboard but not just for your own benefit, rather so that you have something to share. And again, I think this becomes even more clear with the string of analogies that he uses in the following verses when he has children coming and asking for bread and fish and an egg. But what's really interesting is when Jesus gets to the punchline, you know, he says, if, 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 if your child comes to you and asks you for these things, you'll give them the good thing they're asking for. But when Jesus gets to the punchline of it all, down in verse 13, he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? There's no indication anybody here was asking for the Holy Spirit. Okay, you might say, well, Jesus, what if I'm not asking for the Holy Spirit? What if I'm asking for something else? What about that bass boat? Okay, that's what I was really asking for, not the Holy Spirit. Well, see, the point here is that the, the son comes asking for something good. He asks for bread, fish, and an egg. These are daily, earthly needs, and they're worth praying for. But again, here you have this how much more kind of argument. Not only how much more... Will the Heavenly Father, who loves His children, give good gifts? Then earthly fathers are ready to give good gifts to their children. But also, how much more will God give us the ultimate gift? The ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit. How much more? If God will grant you all these lesser lesser things, the fish and the egg and the bread, how much more will He, he give you the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit? See, ultimately, all of our prayers become prayers for the Holy Spirit. 
Ultimately, no matter what we ask for, we're asking for some work or movement or gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promised gift of gifts that Jesus gives to His people, that the Father gives to His people. Everything you could possibly ask for is summed up in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says that all our prayers really come down to two things. Either help or thank you. You know, all of your prayers basically come down to those two things. It's either help or thank you. Okay, either help me or thank you. Okay, well Jesus goes even better than that. He says really all of your prayers come down to one thing, and that is the Holy Spirit. Because when you get the Holy Spirit, you get everything. You get everything you could ever want. Everything you could ever need. Because in giving us the Holy Spirit, God is giving us Himself. In giving us the Holy Spirit, God is giving us His own power and His own presence. He's giving us His own love and His own wisdom. If you could just bottom line all of your prayers, they all come down to this one thing. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit is poured out, what happens? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace and the spirit of renewal. The Spirit makes the world new. The Spirit brings the kingdom in. The Spirit brings that shalom that the prophets talked about. Where the world is set right. Where everything is put in its right place. The Holy Spirit brings that life abundant that Jesus talked about. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. The renewal of all creation. Everything set right. All of your prayers ultimately are prayers for the Holy Spirit. Some work or movement or gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when you pray and when God gives you the Spirit, when you pray for the Spirit and you're given the Spirit, understand that in the Spirit you've got the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The Spirit is indeed the best possible gift. The gift of all gifts. The gift above all gifts. The ultimate gift given to you by the Father through the Son. And when the Spirit is given to us, we are enabled to live lives of peace and joy and love, kingdom lives. The Spirit brings the resurrection life of Christ. The same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead comes to be with us and dwells in us and gives us that resurrection life and power even now. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, it's the future breaking into the present. The Spirit comes as our helper. And our comforter. See, cries for the kingdom, cries for the Spirit will not go unheeded. These are the kinds of prayers the Father delights to answer. Any prayer you offer up to God, ultimately, if it's a legitimate prayer, is a prayer for the Spirit. It's a prayer that God will answer in giving you the Holy Spirit. A work or a movement or a gift of the Spirit. That's what you need. That's what you desire. So understand, yes, Pray for your daily bread. Pray for the midnight bread. Pray for your own needs to be met. Pray for God to give you more than you need so you can share with others. Pray that God would give you His Spirit. The Spirit of the Kingdom that you might do the work of the Kingdom and live the life of the Kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for giving us Your Spirit. Indeed, He is the promised gift of gifts. He is Your power in our lives. He's Your presence with us. He brings your love and your peace and your joy into our lives. Give us your Spirit in answer to our prayers. May you give us all the gifts of the Spirit. Every good thing you give to us, every good thing you bring into our lives is the work of the Spirit. 
May your spirit be at work to give us shalom, that peace your prophets have promised. May your spirit be at work to give us the abundant life, to fill us with all the fullness of your love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.